preferably when you have felt tired or weary in a time where you have been doing what is good and yet the, the difficulty of the situation uh, makes you want to not even try to do it, not even try to continue doing that. And that is, I believe, very much the situation that Jeremiah finds himself in in chapter 32 of Jeremiah. We've, we've said a couple of different times that Jeremiah is a prophet who's been given a message of mostly doom and gloom. He's mostly prophesying to the nation, hey, your wickedness has brought us to the place where there is no going back. What is ahead of you, what is promised to you at this point is you will be carried into exile and you will not be brought back home anytime soon. Go there, live, build houses, plant gardens, raise your kids to do what's right because it's going to be a long haul while you're out of the promised land. And yet in the midst of all those messages of doom and gloom, there are a few times where Jeremiah is given a message that has a lot of hope in it. And really, as we think about Christmas and we think about celebrating the birth of Christ, we are celebrating something that promises us, that provides us with true, lasting hope. The fact that Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world, chose willingly to come into the world to live among sinful, broken people and to go to the cross and pay for your sins and for my sins. This is a message that is full of hope, both for today and for tomorrow, both for you and for me, both for you and me and the city of Des Moines. And so as we look at the story that Jeremiah records in Jeremiah 32, I think that the theme is this, God's good plans provide hope for weary followers. And... It is easy to grow weary. It is, it is easy to grow weary when um, you go through the last two years that we've gone through. The last two years have been difficult. Most of us would have said that it was difficult prior to COVID, and now that we've you know lived through COVID and we've had some extra things that have happened to us, we would say that it's even more difficult. And so what do weary followers and I believe that Jeremiah 32 describes for us and shows us how weary followers respond to the hope that is found in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so if you want to take your Bibles and let's read Jeremiah 32 together. We're going to read from verse 1 all the way through verse 44. And then I believe there are three different big ideas that Jeremiah describes and imitates and models for us that you and I should seek to also imitate and model and follow in our own lives. Jeremiah 32, verse 1. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord in the tenth year of Zedekiah, king of Judah, which was the eighteenth year of Nebuchadnezzar, for then the king of Babylon's army besieged Jerusalem. And Jeremiah the prophet was shut up in the court of the prison, which was in the king of Judah's house. For Zedekiah, king of Judah, had shut him up, saying, Why do you prophesy and say, Thus says the Lord? Behold, I will give this city into the hand of the king of Babylon. He shall take it. Zedekiah, king of Judah, shall not escape from the hand of the Chaldeans, but shall surely be delivered into the hand of the king of Babylon, and shall speak with him face to face, and see him eye to eye. Then he shall lead Zedekiah to Babylon, and there he shall be until I visit him, says the Lord. 
Though you fight with the Chaldeans, you shall not succeed. And Jeremiah said, The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Behold, Hanamel, the son of Shalom, your uncle, will come to you, saying, Buy my field, which is Anathoth, for the right of redemption is yours to buy it. Then Hanamel, my uncle's son, came to me in the court of the prison, according to the word of the Lord, and said to me, Please, buy my field that is in Anathoth, which is in the country of Benjamin, for the right of inheritance is yours, and the redemption yours. Buy it for yourself. Then I knew that this was the word of the Lord, so I bought the field from Hanamel, the son of my uncle, who was in Anathoth, and weighed out to him the money, 17 shekels of silver. And I signed the deed and sealed it, took witnesses, and weighed the money on the scales. So I took the purchase deed, both that which was sealed according to the law and custom, and that which was open, and I gave the purchase deed to Barak, son of Neriah, son of Messiah, in the presence of Hanamel, my uncle's son, and in the presence of the witnesses who signed the purchase deed before all the Jews who sat in the court of the prison. Then I charged Barak before them, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, take these deeds, both this purchase deed, which is sealed, and the deed which is open, and put them in an earthen vessel, that they may last many days. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, house of field, houses and fields and vineyards shall be possessed again in this land. Verse 16. Now when I had delivered the purchase deed to Barak, the son of Neriah, I prayed to the Lord, saying, Ah, Lord God, behold, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. There is nothing too hard for you. You show loving kindness to thousands and repay the iniquity of the fathers into the bosom of their children. After them, the great, the mighty God, whose name is Lord of hosts, you are you are great in counsel and mighty in works. For your eyes are all are opened all, and the ways of the sons of men to give everyone according to his ways and according to the fruit of his doings. You have set signs and wonders in the land of Egypt to this day, and in Israel and among other men. And you have made yourself a name as it is this day. You have brought your people Israel out of the land of Egypt with signs and wonders, with a strong hand and an outstretched arm, with great terror. You have given them this land, of which you swore to their fathers to give them, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they came in and took possession of it. But they have not obeyed your voice or walked in your law. They have done nothing of all that you commanded them to do. Therefore you have caused all this calamity to come upon them. Look, the siege mounts. They have come to the city to take it, and the city has been given into the hand of the Chaldeans to fight against it because of the sword of famine and pestilence. What you have spoken has happened. There, you see it. And you have said to me, O Lord God, buy the field for money and take witnesses. Yet the city has been given into the hand of the Chaldeans. Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, saying, Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is there anything too hard for me? Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, I will give this city into the hand of the Chaldeans, into the hand of, the ne of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and he shall take it. And the Chaldeans who fight against the city shall come and set fire to the city and burn it with the houses on whose roofs they have offered incense to Baal and poured out drink offerings to other gods. Provoke me to anger, because the children of Israel and the children of Judah have done only evil before me from their youth. For the children of Israel have provoked me only to anger, with the work of their hands, says the Lord. For this city has been to me a provocation of my anger and my fury from the day that they built it, even to this day. So I'll remove it from before my face. Because of all the evil of the children of Israel and the children of Judah, which they have done to provoke me to anger, they, their kings, their princes, and their priests, and their prophets, the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, they have turned to me 
the back and not the face, though I taught them, rising up early and teaching them. They have not listened to me to receive instruction, but they set their abomination in the house which is called by my name to defile it. And they built the high places of Baal, which are in the valley of the son of Hinnom, to cause their sons and their daughters to pass through the fire to Molech, which I did not command them. Nor did it come into my mind that they should do this abomination to cause Judah to sin. Now therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning this city of which you say, It shall be delivered into the hand of the king of Babylon by the sword, by the famine, and by pestilence. Behold, I will gather them out of all countries where I have driven them, in my anger, in my fury, and in great wrath. I will bring them back to this place, and I will cause them to dwell safely. They shall be my people, and I will be their God. Then I will give them one heart and one way, that they may fear me forever, for the good of them and their children after them. And I will make an everlasting covenant with them, and I will not turn away from doing them good, but I will put my fear in their hearts so that they will not depart from me. Yes, I will rejoice over them to do them good, and I will assuredly plant them in this land with all my heart and with all my soul. Thus says the Lord, just as I have brought all this great calamity on this people, so I will bring on them all the good that I have promised them. And fields will be brought in this land, of which you say, It is desolate without man or beast. It has been given into the hand of the Chaldeans. Men will buy fields for money, sign deeds and seal them, and take witnesses in the land of Benjamin, and the places around Jerusalem, and the cities of Judah, and the cities of the mountains, and the cities of the lowlands, in the cities of the south, for I will cause their captives to return, says the Lord. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you that your word is sure and that you use stories in your word to teach us and to help us to understand who you are and the fact that we can trust you through times of weariness and hardship. We pray that as we meditate on Jeremiah 32 and the hardships that you put Jeremiah through and the fact that you are seeking to use those hardships to teach him and to teach the nation about you and how we are to respond to you that we too would see your character and that it would shine clearly to us and that you would help us to see how we are to respond to your character. We pray that we would be able to clearly understand your word and that I would be able to clearly communicate it. In your name we pray. Amen. Weary followers obey. Imagine you are Jeremiah. At the beginning of Jeremiah 32, you are weary. Right? You're very weary. You have to be. Look at just the amount of stuff that is recorded for us about Jeremiah. Jeremiah is described as the weeping prophet, and so in Jeremiah 13, 17, this is said about him. But if you will not hear it, my soul will weep in secret for your pride, and my eyes will weep bitterly and run down with tears, because the Lord's flock has been taken captive. Jeremiah is telling people earlier in his ministry, this is what's going to happen. You guys are disobeying. You're constantly disobeying. You have no desire to be reconciled in your relationship with God. And because of your constant disobedience, what's going to happen is you're going to be taken away from the promised land. And when that happens, I'm going to respond to your disobedience by weeping. His heart is heavy at the people's disobedience. 
He's not sad because of God's justice. He's sad because of their disobedience. And then you go on and you look and you see the, the difficulty that he is currently facing. His life situation has not improved. In fact, one could say it's quite worse in Jeremiah 32. Look at the first few verses. Jeremiah 32, 1 just kind of sets the setting. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah from the Lord in the tenth year of Zedekiah, which was the eighth year of Nebuchadnezzar. Verse 2, though, tells us a lot about his current life situation. Verse 2 says, For the king of Babylon's army besieged Jerusalem. Okay. This is a poor life situation. Nobody wants to be in the city that's being sieged by the Babylonian Empire. Nobody. Later on, he's even going to tell God, as he's praying to God, he tells God to do what? In verse 24, look, the siege mounts. You see desperation in his voice. He's like, um, okay, I've been telling everybody that this is coming, God. Okay, so I, I knew that this was going to happen, but it's here. It's outside. They're building siege mounts. And so you have that. You have him being a, a prisoner by the invading empire, the Babylonians. But his situation is worse than everybody else's because he's not simply a prisoner of the invading Babylonians. He's also a prisoner of who? The king of Judah. Look with me later on in verse 2. And Jeremiah the prophet was shut up in the court of the prison, which was in the king of Judah's house. Why? Because Zedekiah heard his message from God. God had come and told Jeremiah to go and tell Zedekiah, hey, here's what's going to happen. The Babylonians are going to invade, and when they invade, you're not going to escape. In fact, you're going to see the Babylonian king face to face. You're going to be carried off into the enemy territory, and you will never again return to the kingdom in which over which you are ruled currently. And Zedekiah hears this message, and he's like, I'm going to show him. I'll lock you up in prison. Meanwhile, he's a prisoner in his own royal city. It's kind of silly, but that's Jeremiah's plight. He is a weary person. You're weary too, right? COVID's been rough on people's relationships. There have been uh, disease. There's been illnesses. There's been death of various family members. It's been a rough couple of years. And how do we respond in the midst of such weariness? Well, Jeremiah responds with continued faithful Jeremiah is in the midst of having followed God faithfully and obeyed, and it's led him to more difficult situations. And yet at the end of describing his current plight, verse 6 tells us that Jeremiah gets a new command. He's in a rough spot nationally and personally, and yet God sends Jeremiah a messenger in verse 6. And Jeremiah said, the word of the Lord came to me who he's communicating to him. It's God. God's communicating to him a new message, something that he wants him to do. Behold, Hanamel, the son of Shalom, your uncle, will come to you, saying, Buy my field, which is in Anathoth, for the right of redemption is yours to buy it. And so he gets this messenger who comes to him, and Jeremiah, in the midst of all the stresses he's already facing in the city of Jerusalem, being imprisoned by the invading army, being imprisoned by the current reigning king of Judah, because he's told God's message already, God comes and tells him, hey, your uncle's son is coming, 
And what it tells you to do is a message from me. Obey. And the message is this. Hey, Jeremiah, use your money and buy this piece of land in the country that's being invaded. Now, I'm not, I'm not the most brilliant person when it comes to real estate and stuff, but I'm smart enough to know that if you buy real estate under one legal jurisdiction and another one comes in in a very hostile way and kills a bunch of people and takes over, the likelihood of that land remaining under your control, not very high. So you're in the last few, you know, little bit leading up to this one regime is completely overthrown and any legal documents you have saying this land belongs to me is like, well, great. Uh, put it in your fire pit and keep warm during the winter. Like, that's what it's worth, right? And God sends him a messenger saying, you have the right to redeem this land. Go and buy this land. Nobody makes this business decision when they're thinking correctly. Nobody does. It's absolutely absurd. But yet this is the message that God gives Jeremiah. And so he records, uh, the Hanamel, my uncle's son, came to me in the courts in the prison Please buy my field that is in Anathoth, which is in the country of Benjamin. For the right of inheritance is yours, and the redemption yours. Buy it for yourself. Then I knew that this was the word of the Lord. So I bought the field from Hanamel, the son of my uncle who was in Anathoth, and weighed out to him the money, 70 shekels of silver. It's just really quite absurd if you just think about it in that context. Like, why would you buy that piece of land? And that's what he does. He's instructed to purchase the land, and he follows through. He knows it is the Lord's message, and so he obeys. And he goes and he buys this piece of land. And he follows all the current legal practices. You see that in verse 10 and following. He weighs, he signs, he takes witnesses, he takes the purchase deed, he sealed it according to the law and the customs, and he gave the purchase deed to Baruch, his helper, the son of Neriah, son of Masiah, in the presence of Hanamel, my uncle's son, and in the presence of the witnesses who signed the purchase deed before all the Jews who sat in the court of the prison. In his desperation, Jeremiah obeys because he believes in the Lord. What does your obedience demonstrate about your faith? What does your lack of obedience demonstrate about your faith in God's goodness? This would be a crazy hard command to follow through and obey. I mean, like, you know, silver holds its value pretty well from one regime to the next. A piece of paper saying, I own this land, when the king is out of state and nobody follows him anymore, that's not very valuable. I'll keep my silver and, you know, risk it being stolen. And yet he follows through. Why? Because he believes the promises of the Lord. He's been recording these promises day after day. He's been proclaiming these promises that God is going to bring gloom and doom right now. But there is a promise of hope in the future. A day in which God will come and restore the people to their land. In which the land promises will be once again fulfilled. In which the land will abundantly and in which there will be great spiritual blessing 
in Jeremiah 31, he's just told us what? There's coming a day when people will no longer have to tell people, know the Lord. Why? Because everybody's going to know him already. And so these are the promises that Jeremiah has been telling people. I believe that there is coming a day when the doom and the gloom that I'm currently prophesying will be ended. It will be because people have come to the Lord in repentance. They'll have turned to him again in faith and obedience. And so what are the situations where you find yourself struggling with obedience to the Lord's commands? Is it because of the, the pressures that you face in this life? What are those pressures? How do you respond to them? How should you be responding to them? Are you struggling with partial obedience, where you obey up to a certain point and yet you fail to follow through in every aspect of obedience? The pressures and the stresses that we face are not a justification for disobedience. You and I are called to obedience even under difficult circumstances. And Jeremiah models that for us in a beautiful way. Because I'm pretty sure my first inclination, if I had 17 shekels of silver and a piece of land that was going to have a deed that meant absolutely nothing in a couple months, my first inclination would be like, yeah, I'm going to go buy that land. Yet Jeremiah believes what? He believes that God's going to fulfill his promises. And he believes that God is going to use this to teach. And so you and I need to learn to trust and to follow through in obedience. But Jeremiah doesn't simply obey. Jeremiah follows through and he prays as well. And I believe that weary followers pray. And so Jeremiah has just received this news. He's followed through. He's followed all the legal requirements of purchasing this land. He's got everything set up. He even has the, the sealed deed in a earthen vessel. And it's the same type of earthen vessel probably that they use for the Dead Sea Scrolls. And the Dead Sea Scrolls were preserved for hundreds of years. So, I mean, like, this really preserves stuff really quite well. That's the idea. He believes that this is his land. Even though he's himself is being carried off into Babylon. But he follows through with prayer. In verse 16 through verse 25, what he does is he goes to God in prayer. And he tells God what he thinks. Following his obedience, Jeremiah approaches the Lord in prayer. And he professes that God is great and he has insurmountable greatness. Now, when I had delivered the purchase deed to Baruch, the son of Neriah, I prayed to the Lord, saying, Ah, Lord God, behold, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. There is nothing too hard for you. It's interesting. It sounds like Jeremiah like fully understands like exactly what God's doing, and he's like completely behind this plan of you know buying a piece of land that he knows is going to be completely meaningless and have paperwork that's worth burning. And yet he goes to the Lord after he's purchased this land. He's kind of sent everybody away. And you kind of see him now. He's back in the prison all by himself, kind of contemplating his life's choices. And he goes to God and he begins. And he's just like, God, you are truly great. 
describes his greatness. You made the heavens. You made the earth. By your great power and the outstretched arm, there is nothing too hard for you. You can do anything, God. I believe that. You you could even you could even allow me to have this land, even though humanly speaking there is zero hope that I will have this land, because the Babylonians they're out there. Look the, the siege ramps. And he goes on, and he, he professes that God is great, and he has insurmount, his nature is insurmountable. And he goes on from there, and he tells about God's just dealings with all his people. In verse 19, let's read verse 18 as well. You show loving kindness to thousands and repay the iniquity of the fathers into the bosom of their children after them. The great, the mighty God, whose name is Lord of hosts, you are great in counsel and mighty your works, for your eyes are open to all the ways of the sons of men, to give everyone according to his ways and according to the fruit of his doings. What is he saying? Not only are you great and able to do anything, but you're just in how you deal with us. When people sin, you are quick to judge them, and you judge them righteously in a way that people look on, and as they look on and they study the facts, they go, God is a just God. He deals rightly with people and with their sin. But he goes on, and as he goes on, he describes in greater detail the faithlessness of the people. And what he's doing is he's he's highlighting the loving character of God, and then he tells about God's justice, and he says, God, you're right in allowing the Babylonians to surround us and get ready to slaughter many of us and take us away from your promised land, because we have not been this is just. This is good. That's a hard thing to pray. Especially when you know that the Babylonians are encircling the city that you're in. And you've been prophesied for the last couple of years. Gloom and doom. Destruction is coming. People are going to die. People are going to be taken away. Some of you will never see your family members ever again. That's a hard message. And yet... As he describes the people's sin, look at what he says in verses 20 through 22. You have set signs and wonders in the land of Egypt to this day, and in Israel, among other men. You have made yourself a name as it is this day. You have brought your people Israel out of the land of Egypt with signs and wonders and a strong hand and an outstretched arm and with great terror. You have given them this land of which you swore to their fathers to give them, a land flowing with milk and You've been a good God. You've cared for these people. You did something that was unthinkable, bringing them out of the land of Egypt. Who would have thought that Pharaoh's iron clasp grips, grip on the nation of Israel would have ever been released and allowed these people to escape? And yet you did it, God. You parted the Red Sea. You led them in the wilderness for 40 years, providing them nourishment from yourself, providing them water from rock. You did this, God. You allowed them to conquer these people, even though they never knew how to go into battle. He's saying, God, you have been loving, you have been good to these people. And yet, how do these people respond to their, their God? Verse 23 and verse 24. And they came in and took possession of it, but they have not obeyed your voice or walked in your law. They have done nothing of all that you've Therefore you have caused
cause all this calamity to come upon them. And then you can almost like hear the, the pitch of Jeremiah's voice change as he's praying to God, and he's like, he goes up a couple octaves, right? Look! The siege mounts! They have come to the city to take it, and the city has been given into the hands of the Chaldeans who fight against it because of the sword and the famine and the pestilence. What you have spoken has happened. There you see it, and you have said to me, O Lord God, buy the field for money and take witnesses. Yet the city has been given into the hand of the Chaldeans. What's his grievance? God, you're a great God. You can do things that are completely unbelievable. Look at how you miraculously led your people out of the nation of Egypt, and you toured them around the wilderness, and you cared for them and provided for their needs and all that, and then you brought them into the land. It was a good land, and you provided for them abundantly, and yet they disobeyed you, and they deserve this, but now you're telling me to buy land here. Meanwhile, I know that I'm being escorted out later on. What are you doing, God? What's the plan? How does this all work out? I don't understand. I want to trust you. But this doesn't make sense. That's the idea, right? He's going to God. He's going to God in prayer. He acknowledges the character of God. But he's also questioning God's purposes. Why is God doing this? Why is God seeking to teach in this way at this time? God has been faithful, yet Judah's faithlessness is costly. God's good plan is still unfolding, and Jeremiah is charged with purchasing the land. And I believe that what you and I need to see from the passage is this, is that weary followers come to the Lord in prayer. You know that there are situations that you and I face that don't make sense to us. And how do we respond to them? How do we respond to the difficult situations where we find ourselves? Whether it be pain of various kinds, or death, or family members that we don't get to see as much as we would like, financial difficulties, how do we respond to all these things? And what Jeremiah models for us is that weary followers go to the Lord in prayer, and they ask God to intervene. They ask God, what's going on? And so you and I need to go to the Lord in prayer as weary followers. We go to the Lord and we praise him for his character and his care. We ask the Lord to clarify a difficult situation. Where else could we go? It's much like the followers of Jesus do, and they come to Jesus and they're like, where else are we going to go? You have the words of eternity. Where else are you going to go? There's lots of things that you can turn to. You could turn to relationships with family. You could turn to an extra TV show. You could turn to uh, an extra vacation. And yet none of those things satisfy. In our insufficiency, we seek after Christ. And one of the primary means that we do that at least initially, is by turning to the Lord in prayer and saying, I'm a weary follower, and I need to be reminded of your character. And it's interesting that God provides Jeremiah the reminders of his character and of his wonder. 
And when those reminders of God's character and God's goodness and God's faithfulness come, what do weary followers do? Weary followers cling to hope. Look with me at verse 26 through verse 44. As Jeremiah has his prayers answered by God. Verse 26. Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah saying, Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is there anything too hard for me? God reassures Jeremiah with his own words. If you remember, Jeremiah, just a few verses earlier, in verse 17, said this, Ah, Lord God, behold, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. There is nothing too hard for you. And yet he ends by saying, And you have said to me, O Lord God, buy the field for money and take witnesses, yet the city has been given into the hand of the Chaldeans. What does God come back and say? Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, saying, Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is there anything too hard for me? What's he doing? He's saying, remember those, those beautiful words describing the character of God that you used in verse 17? I haven't changed, Jeremiah. That's still who I am. I am a great God who can do exceedingly, abundantly, above and beyond all that you could think or ask. Is there anything too hard for me? And the answer that Jeremiah is supposed to respond with is, no, God, I'll buy the field. I've already, I've already done it, but I'll trust you in having made this seemingly futile business venture, right? That's the, that's the response that Jeremiah is supposed to arrive at. And so God works through this. And God's punishment, he says, is certain. He describes this in verses 28 and 29. Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, I will give the city into the hand of the Chaldeans, into the hand of, the ne of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and he shall take it. And the Chaldeans who fought fight against the city shall come and set fire to the city and burn it with the houses on whose roofs they have offered incense to Baal and poured out drink offerings to other gods to provoke me to anger. It says, Judgment is coming. I, I can do anything I want. Absolutely. And what I want right now is to judge the Kenyans. But he goes on. He tells them that Israel's rebellion is severe. And it's been relentless. And he describes that for us in verses 13 through 35. Verse 30 he tells us, Because the children of Israel have done only evil, they provoked him. Verse 30. For this city has been to me a provocation of my anger, so I will remove it from before my face. Why? Because of all the evil of the children of Israel and the children of Judah, which they have done to provoke me to anger. They and their kings, their princes and their priests, their prophets and their Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. It's all inclusive. It's relentless. They won't stop. They won't Irregardless of how many times Jeremiah has come to them, begging them, God is a wrathful God, and he's angry with your sins. Stop doing this. God is happy to restore you and make you his special chosen people again and to relent of this doom and gloom. They haven't obeyed. They haven't repented. And so God promises them a future hope in verse 36 through 39. He tells them, yeah, this is, this is, listen to what's going to happen. 
but from the ashes of destruction that he's described. And he describes ashes, right? In verse 29, who fight against this city shall come and set fire to the city and burn it. There's a heap of rubble. Ashes floating in the air. And what does God say he's going to do with this land? Verse 36 through 39 says this, Now therefore thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning this city of which you say, It shall be delivered into the hand of the king of Babylon by the sword, by the famine, and by the pestilence. Behold, I will gather them out of all countries which I have driven them in my anger, in my fury, and in great wrath. And I will bring them back to this place, and I will cause them to dwell safely. They shall be my people, and I will be their God. Then I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for the God of them and their children after them. And I will make an everlasting covenant with them. And I will not turn away from doing them good. But I will put my fear in their hearts so that they will not depart from me. Yes, I will rejoice over them to do them good. And I will assuredly plant them in this land with all my heart, with all my soul. Thus says the Lord. Just as I have brought all this great calamity on this people, so I will bring on them all the good that I have promised them. And fields will be brought in the, bought in this land of which you say, It is desolate without man or beast that has been given into the hand of the Chaldeans. Men will buy fields for money, sign deeds and seal them, and take witnesses in the land of Benjamin, in the places around Jerusalem, in the cities of Judah, in the cities of the mountains, in the cities of the lowland, in the cities of the south. For I will cause their captives to return, says the Lord. What does he tell Jeremiah? I can do anything, and I will, but not until after I've punished. What is he saying? He's saying there is hope. God promises a future day of restoration. a permanent restoration of his people. He says in verse 40, and I'll make an everlasting covenant with them that I will not turn away from doing them good, but I'll put my fear in them, in their hearts, so that they will not depart from me. God yearns to care for his people. And so what is your hope? What is my hope in in our weary lives. You know, our, our hope is not that, you know, one day um, poor real estate decisions will be made right. Okay? Um, that's, that's not what we're promising here this morning, okay? Don't go out and, you know, buy some random lake that you've never seen that's promised to have gold and oil underneath it, okay? Don't go do that. That's not, that's not your future hope. Jeremiah is writing to the nation of Israel with very specific promises for the nation of Israel. And yet, you do have a future hope. Or at least you can have a future hope. But your future hope is not found in uh, purchasing a seemingly stupid piece of real estate and hoping that the situation around it will reverse drastically because God loves you and makes it a profitable piece of real estate. That's not what's happening in this passage for you. 
you and I have or can have is that some 2,000 years ago, God the Father looked upon a broken, sinful world. He saw that we were alienated from God, that we are separated from God. The death was certainly in all of our futures. That as a result of Adam's sin, that we were separated from each other, but more importantly, that we were separated from God. And that ultimately, we would pay that death penalty for eternity. And he looked upon our broken, lamentable situation. He said, I will provide a solution for this crisis. And he looks at his dear son and he says, Jesus, you are that solution. You will enter the world born as a baby, live among sinful, broken hurt, and ultimately go to the cross and die for them. So that when somebody cries out and says, I believe that Christ's death is sufficient for my redemption, they can have hope as well. The penalty of death that's physical, the penalty of death that's separating people from God, the penalty of death that leads Eternal separation from God in hell can be broken. That is the hope that we have. That is the hope that we celebrate at Christmas. And it, it, it's ultimately all tied up in this hope that Jeremiah is looking forward to, right? Because these promises that Jeremiah makes that are spiritual promises, these are promises that cannot happen in a broken, sin-cursed world. Jeremiah is looking forward to a day when the Messiah will come and he'll make all people's hearts right. And so our hope is in this passage. It's just not found in the, the land part. Don't go buy a stupid piece of real estate and expect it to work out for you, okay? There's hope, though. And the hope that we have is found in Jesus Christ. And so rejoice this Christmas. Because the sin debt that you owe is not a sin debt that you must pay. Why? Because Jesus died and paid that sin debt for you. And he's offering that payment to you. As long as you will come and trust his finished work. And say, I'm going to stop trusting in my own solution to my crisis. And I'm going to trust him and accept his gift of righteousness. And I will rejoice in that So as we think about application, weariness is part of life in a broken world. It's part of life in a fallen world. It's part of Jeremiah's life. It was part of your life 10 years ago. It's going to be part of your life this year. And if God waits, it'll be part of your life 10 years from now. It's part of living in a broken fallen world. And yet, the broken, fallen world is not how God designed or meant this world to be. It's not how God made this world. He made a perfect, good world. And our sin ruined that world. And 
that's why we find ourselves so often being weary. Weariness, though, provides us with opportunity to respond in trust or disbelief. And we all respond in one way or the other. In our weariness, in our in our angst with living in a broken, fallen world and the pain that creeps up in those situations, you and I are faced with the option to either respond in trust or in disbelief. And Jeremiah has modeled for us what it looks like to follow the Lord in trust. First of all, it looks like obeying the Lord's instructions. And as we say that we're going to obey the Lord's instructions, it really begs the question what the Lord's instructions are, right? It's kind of meaningless instruction for me to tell you to obey the Lord's instructions, and yet you don't know how to know what the Lord's instructions are or what do the Lord's instructions look for like for my life, right? Okay, that's great, but how do I do that? And so, in seeking the Lord's instructions, what do we do? Will we turn to the Lord and, and we seek to read his word? Will we hear his word? Will we meditate on his word? And then we make plans so that we can follow the instructions that we receive about God and how he wants us to live in relationship with him. We approach the Lord in prayer. We demonstrate that we believe God is a good God. He's a powerful God. He's a powerful God who's able to accomplish and do anything by taking our trials to God in prayer. Right? If, if I have a trial and all I do is worry about it, who am I trusting to solve this problem? I'm trusting myself. If I have a problem and I'm like, turning to only outside counsel and asking you what all your opinions are, who am I trusting to solve my crisis? I'm trusting me. Now, I mean, there's appropriate times to reach out and ask for advice. But we must remember that we take our problems to the Lord. That's what Jeremiah models for us. And he begins his complaint by praising the Lord. The, the vast majority of his prayer probably eight-tenths of it or so, is praising God for who he is and how he's worked in the world. And in the final two verses, he's like, oh, besiege mounts. And, oh God, what are you asking me to do buying this piece of land? Because this looks like a failed business venture for sure. So we approach the Lord in prayer, and then we cling to the hope that is found in him. You know, the weariness of life will not this lifetime. The aches and pains I hear will get worse. The amount of people that you know that suffer from greater difficulties with health is going to increase. The number of friends that you have, unless you're really, really good at making friends throughout your whole life, will decrease as you age. Life is full of heartache. And the heartache causes us to be weary. And so what do you go to in that? The only thing that provides true hope, true lasting hope, is Christ. And so we cling to the hope that is found in Christ. The brokenness of this fallen world, the solution is found in Christ and in him alone. So you and I turn to the Lord in times of desperation, 
because he provides us with hope. We live in a broken world. That's not going to change. But the brokenness of this world provides you and I opportunities to look at life and say, how will I respond? Will I respond in trust or disbelief? Will I respond in obedience or disobedience? Will I respond by grumbling or will I respond in going to the Lord in prayer? Will I respond by turning to a line of Oreos or will I turn to Christ and say, I trust that the hope that I find in Christ will see me through this trial. This Christmas season, we rejoice because we have a true lasting hope. This season, rejoice in that hope. Live it out by pursuing trust in Jesus Christ. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for the fact that you teach us, and you use many different means to teach us, and you use illustrations, and you use stories to help us to understand your character. We thank you that Jeremiah models for us how to respond in obedience, and that we can see your character so clearly through this story of the lamb that he purchased. We pray that you would use this to challenge us to live faithfully and to encourage us to continue to live in trust and obedience to you. 